0: Okay, so we are starting a new series titled Weapons of the Kingdom, Uh, and the title of today's specific sermon, the first sermon in the series, is This Present Darkness, okay? And the scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 18, which I will read for you right now. You guys can follow along. Hear now God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, Amen. Okay, so this passage that uh, we just read, uh, Ephesians six. It's uh, I forgot to bring my stool out. Um, getting old, I gotta, I gotta grunt when I lean over. Uh, so this passage that we just read, ephesians six, it's, it's a very popular one. Uh, this this whole idea of putting on the armor of God. Uh, a lot of sermons have been based on this theme, uh, but even more than sermons, I would say, Sunday school curriculum and vBS's have leveraged this image a lot, uh, almost too much, right uh, you guys see they, they have things like this all over the place on the internet. but the fact that they would leverage this makes sense, right? The, the image of a soldier putting on armor, it's, it's a very powerful image, okay? It captures the imagination, it focuses the mind, it gives you a different way of thinking of things. But here's the thing, as creative and as playful as churches have gotten with this image, the truth of the matter is the image is actually one that is deadly serious, Is about as far, it's about as far from child's play as you can get, in fact. What Paul is actually doing here, okay, in Ephesians 6, is he's giving a battle speech. That's what he's doing. He's basically rallying these Christian troops together, you know, just Christians, right? He's rallying the troops together and he's preparing them to engage in a fight with an extremely serious and powerful enemy. I don't know if everyone in here uh, has ever seen the movie Braveheart, right? Have you guys seen that movie? Okay. Um, It was a movie that was very popular with with my generation when I was in college. Uh, Well, in that movie, there's a man named William Wallace, right? Uh, And the plot is basically just him trying to lead Scotland, okay, his country in a fight for its freedom. England had been, had been ruling them for, for, for many years, and he and many of his countrymen didn't want that anymore, okay? Well, right before one of the first battles in this fight, what William Wallace does is he gives a battle speech to his men to try to rally them together to fight, okay? And what I want to do right now is I want to play that speech for you. I have a great clip for you guys. I guess I'm shoot that up. Raise the volume, please. I am William Wallace and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Against that? No! We will run and we will live. Aye. Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade? All the days, from this day to that, for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! I swear when I first saw that movie, I, you know that line, uh, they can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. I swear I heard him say wives, <laughs> right? They can take our, our wives like our spouses, but and I was like, that's a little weird. Uh, but then I realized what, what he said, riveting speech, right? Some of you, you can go home and you're going to watch it, right? Uh, it was, it was, I was so inspired by this movie after I saw it the first time in the theaters that uh, we actually planned... Uh, worship praise night at our church called Bravehearts. Um, it's a terrible name now that I think about it, but uh, we were just so moved by, by by this movie. Easily, this battle speech that William Wallace gives is one of my favorite battle speeches. It's actually probably my all-time favorite battle speech. I think the only other one that comes close uh, is the one from uh, Independence Day. You guys know that one, right? It's a little cheesy, but if you if you suspend reality for a little bit. It's like, wow, that was a really good speech. Anyway, you should watch that as well. Well, that's what Paul is doing here in today's text. He's giving a battle speech to the Ephesians. Paul knows that the fight that lays ahead of them, okay? He he knows, okay, the fight that lays ahead of them, okay? And so at the end of his letter, what he wants to do is he wants to make sure that he leaves the Ephesians prepared, Okay, he wants to make sure that they are emboldened for the battles that he knows that they're going to have to face. The apostle Paul knows without question that this enemy is not going to let up. He knows, he knows what the enemy is like. He has had a lot of experience with this enemy, and he knows that this enemy is relentless. And to fight an enemy like that, Paul knows that these Christians have to be prepared And so, he gives them this battle speech, okay, and he basically tells these Christians to stand fast in their fight against this enemy. In fact, he says that four times in these verses. He says in verse 11, take your stand. Stand your ground, he says in verse 13. And then again in verse 13, he says, after you've done everything, stand. And then finally in verse 14, he says, stand firm. Basically, Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, the days that lay ahead of us are going to be filled with evil. We are engaged in a cosmic struggle against a powerful, relentless enemy, and this enemy is not going to stop attacking us. So we need to stand our ground, and we need to stay alert. Because this enemy is going to try to do everything it can to take us down, and we must not go down. That's what Paul is saying. Brothers and sisters, there is a, a long, enduring battle that we are all engaged in, whether we like it or not. Okay? And the truth of the matter is, most of us are barely in the fight. In fact, from my observation, I would say most of us don't even realize we're in a fight. And that is quite possibly the worst place we can be in as Christians. Now, before I say anything further, let me talk about our enemy a little bit. If we're in a fight against an enemy, it's important to know who our enemy is, right? Well, this is what Paul does for us in verse 12, okay? He identifies our true enemy for us. This is what he says. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's our enemy. So, people today, you know, they look at this verse, uh, and they're like… Really? Dark spiritual forces? Demons? I mean, do we really still believe in that kind of thing anymore? And it's not just atheists and skeptics who respond like this. A lot of Christians respond like this as well. You know, there are a lot of Christians out there who think believing in demons is kind of silly. And so, what some believers have done right, to try to make this verse more palatable to the modern, to our, you know, our modern sensibilities, is they've reinterpreted what Paul is saying here, okay? Instead of quote-unquote spiritual forces and demons, they'll say that Paul is actually referring to demonic systems and structures that humans have set up. So, they don't believe in Satan and demons. What they believe is that sinful human beings have built things that are demonic and destructive in nature, And that's kind of the modern reinterpretation. Now, the problem with this reinterpretation is that Paul here is, in fact, referring to spiritual beings. He's not being metaphorical. The Apostle Paul absolutely believes in demons and Satan because in the book of Acts and in his letters that he wrote, there are accounts of his personal interactions with them. In Acts chapter 16, Paul casts a demon out of a girl. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about how Satan blocked him from being able to visit them. And in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how Satan sent a messenger to torment him. When you read the Bible, it's clear that Jesus and the apostles encountered and interacted with literal demons. Okay? Jesus teaches that Satan is a real being. In fact, in today's text, what Paul is doing is he's telling the Ephesians that our spiritual enemies, not only are they real, okay, but they're actually far more vast than we realize. Clinton E. Arnold, he's a New Testament scholar who wrote one of the definitive commentaries on the book of Ephesians. He says that when Paul talks about rulers and authorities and powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, what Paul is doing is this. This is what he writes in his commentary. Paul clarifies here that the opposition is not one powerful supernatural being, but a whole range of evil spiritual forces of varying rank, authority, and capabilities, Okay, most commentators and scholars that I've read agree with him on this. Now, here's the thing. Those of us who believe in evil spiritual realities like demons and, and Satan, okay, we do actually believe that those forces have a hand in the evil systems and structures we see in the world. So we believe systems and structures can be demonic, but what we also believe, which some modern people don't, is that there are actual spiritual forces at play, oftentimes, behind those things. Now, what I want to do right now is I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about uh, war strategy. Okay, war strategy. So, if you're going to be successful against a particular enemy, like I said before, it's imperative that you know who your enemy is right? But it's also imperative that you know where they are and what they're up to and what they're capable of, right? This is why during any conflict, countries put so much energy and resources into the gathering of intelligence. The more information you have about your enemy, okay, about their identity, about their whereabouts, about what they're up to, about their abilities, the more information you have about those things, the more you'll be able to defend against them. And the more you'll be able to attack them effectively and and take out their strongholds and, and so on. In fact, the worst possible situation you can find yourself in during a conflict is not having enough information about your enemy. If you don't know where your enemy is or what they're up to, you are in big trouble. You are at a severe tactical disadvantage, which on the other hand... Uh, is a massive advantage for them. And so this is why so much money is poured into developing technologies and tactics that make our military more and more undetectable. Because in warfare, invisibility is an extremely powerful advantage. The more invisible you can make yourself, the more dangerous you are. Okay, That's why we have things like what? Camouflage and radar jamming and stealth technology. It's all to make us more invisible and thus more dangerous and effective and lethal, okay? And this is also why both in the movies and in reality, special ops forces will often attack under the cover of night. Now, here's how this relates to what we've been talking about so far. So, for a lot of us today, okay, especially in the West, especially in America, this whole notion that there is an evil supernatural being called Satan… Okay, and that he has these minions called demons, okay? It just strikes us as so preposterous. I mean, mean, in today's modern world, how is it even possible to believe in things like that? That's how a lot of people think when it it comes to things like demons, okay? To many people in our world today, even many Christians, belief in Satan and demons comes across as not just unintelligent and uninformed, but it comes across as utterly naive even insane a little bit. It's just such a silly, superstitious, pre-scientific way of thinking about the world. But let me ask you this. Have you ever thought that if Satan is real, that this is precisely what he'd want you to believe? I mean, it would be pretty advantageous to him if he were able to convince us that he's not real, right? That's a huge tactical advantage that he'd have over us. I mean, if we don't know that he and his demons are there, if we don't believe in them, okay, and they could influence us in any number of ways, if they could do that, we'd be completely oblivious. If we don't realize they're there, they could influence us in any number of ways and we'd be completely oblivious. He could have a field day with us. And not only would we be utterly unaware, but we would also be totally helpless because our defenses would always be down. And so that means we would be easy, easy prey for Satan and demons, okay? If there's a sniper outside my house that someone sent to kill me for some reason, just, I don't know, maybe they hate me, right? And I have no idea that that sniper is out there, I'm just going to walk around my house and go about my day like nothing is wrong. And I'm going to be completely and utterly exposed and helpless because I don't know there's anything to defend against. That's the tactical advantage that Satan has with a lot of us. I promise you, he is going to do all he can to preserve that advantage over you. So in the movie, uh, Usual Suspects, right, the Usual Suspects, long time ago, Uh, there's a really famous line that goes like this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Now, it's not a completely original line. You know, there's some authors from the past who who had some variation of that. Now, look, I know this is a line just from a a movie, uh, but the more I've read about Satan in the Bible, uh, and about how he functions, the more I'm convinced that this is what he is doing with a lot of us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that Satan masquerades around as an angel of light. The book of Revelation calls Satan the great deceiver. Jesus Himself in the Gospel of John says that Satan is the father of lies. And if you read the narratives where you see Satan operating, what you observe is that he is all about twisting the truth, taking half-truths to make a false argument, questioning our perception of things, insinuating things, hinting at things to try to distort our grasp of reality, camouflage, disguising himself as something else, deceit, remaining in the shadows, okay? Satan knows that all of that is to his advantage, which is why he's constantly exploiting it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, talks about exactly this. So, the book Screwtape Letters, it is fiction, okay? It is fiction. Uh, But just like his Chronicles of Narnia, okay? uh, C.S. Lewis wrote wrote that series. Just like his Chronicles of Narnia, what C.S. Lewis does with the Screwtape Letters is he uses his imagination and the genre of fiction to try to explore and to try to understand real truth better, to apprehend it at a deeper level okay? Alistair McGrath, he wrote a fantastic biography on C.S. Lewis. He writes this, children's stories offered C.S. Lewis a marvelous way of exploring philosophical and theological questions, such as the origins of evil, the nature of faith, and the human desire for God. A good story could weave these themes together using the imagination as the gateway to serious thinking, okay? This is what he does with the screw tape letters. So, there's a senior demon, named Screwtape in this book, okay? And the whole book is just this senior demon named Screwtape giving advice to a junior demon named Wormwood about how to tempt human beings and to keep them from God. Well, this is the advice he gives to Wormwood at one point. He says this, our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves, okay? That's the demon, demonic policy, okay? I do not think you will, have very, you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to rise, arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. makes sense, right? From what we know of Satan in the Bible, that he would be deceptive like this makes a whole lot of sense. In fact, I think this is actually one of the reasons why so many of us disbelieve in Satan and demons. Satan has pulled the wool over our eyes because he knows that that makes his job that much easier, I would actually highly recommend reading Screwtape Letters. I know Pastor Bobe did not recommend it because it's so disturbing, but if you can bear with it, I really highly recommend reading it because it just shows you how easily we are manipulated. and It's very, very insightful. Like I said, for a lot of us, demons are the stuff of ghost stories and cartoons and horror movies, okay? But if you take away those absurd cultural caricatures and the cultural baggage, okay, if you take those blinders off and you try to think seriously about the reality of Satan, there's a couple things that you're going to see, okay? First, and let me put it to you this way. So, a lot of us in here believe in a personal God, right? Most people do. Most people do believe in a personal God. There's been surveys put out, it's like 70% or something. Okay, most people believe in a personal God. We in here believe in a personal God. Well, as Tim Keller likes to put it, and this is a paraphrase, if we can believe in a supernatural, supernatural personal good, namely God, okay, if we can believe in a supernatural personal good, why is it not plausible to believe in a supernatural personal evil? In fact, it's perfectly reasonable to believe in a supernatural personal evil if you believe in a supernatural personal good, especially if that supernatural personal good explicitly says that a supernatural personal evil exists. I, I recently texted with a good friend of mine. Easily, he's one of the most intelligent people I know. He's a trained philosopher. He texted me this. He says, I don't understand why anyone who believes in God and good angels would have serious doubts about demons. If a person is an atheist, I understand. But theistic skepticism of demons is just weird to me. Basically, he's saying the same thing that Tim Keller is saying just a little bit more blunt, right? Uh, This is what pastors and philosophers text about in their spare time. Anyway, someone's going to push back. Well, if there is an all-powerful good God, why would He allow a supernatural personal evil to exist? Well, if you can ask that, you might as well ask, why does God let human beings to exist who are capable of evil? Why? He allows it because He's not out to create robots. He gives us choice. If God gives us human beings, a choice to obey or disobey. The fact that he would give supernatural beings that same choice makes a whole lot of sense. Second Peter, in fact, says that there are angels who sinned. Second Peter says that there are angels who sinned, which means they had a choice to do evil or to do good, and they chose evil, unfortunately. So believing in a supernatural personal evil is not illogical. It actually makes a whole lot of sense. Demons, other, otherwise referred to in the Bible as unclean or evil spirits, brothers and sisters, they are real. Rob Reamer uh, is a friend of ours. He's a professor at Alliance Theological Seminary. I mentioned him from time to time. He shows about this one time during a deliverance session in one of his classes uh, where the man that they were trying to deliver uh, from a demon... All of a sudden, this, you know, he was a big man. This, all of a sudden, this huge man in the middle of the deliverance, he's four feet off the ground, flying through the air. And after about 20 feet, he hits the wall, and he lands in front of uh, this student named Kelvin Walker, okay? Everyone in that class who witnessed this, they were completely shocked when they saw this. Even Rob Ream was shocked. Now, eventually, you know, they were able to deliver him uh, because the power of God is greater Okay, But this happened. Okay, you, can, you can talk to any of the students that were there that day. I love this example because you have multiple people, multiple witnesses who are trustworthy that can testify to exactly this happening. And they're local. Uh, another pastor that I know was having a Bible study with a man, a, you know, a new man that he had befriended. Uh, but the moment that they, op- they opened the Bible to start the Bible study... This guy just starts manifesting, just starts saying weird things, and then he starts harming himself. He took this this plastic case filled with cards and crushed it in his hands, and he starts scraping himself with it, right? So the pastor, he's kind of freaked out, right, because he was just a youth pastor at the time. Uh, So he calls a number of uh, big youth group kids from his church to help him, okay? And so they they get this man. They want to keep him from harming himself, and so they try to subdue him, but this guy, who's not very big at all... He is so strong, like he has superhuman strength. And every every time they would try to subdue him and keep him down, he would just go like this, and break their hold, and they would go fly. Uh, pastor Mimi, the, our guest, our retreat speaker, um, she was telling me uh, that she has a friend, or uh, she she's a friend who is a pastor, and this pastor shared with her that there was this one time that he was he was about to preach to the congregation at his church. Uh, but when he looked up, and he looked over the congregation, right, he could see demons on certain people trying to influence them. Uh, people often call this the gift of discerning spirits. Uh, don't worry, I don't have it. I can't, even, I can't even see you guys. The lights are in my eyes, right? Uh, I, I think it's a terrible gift. I don't know why it's called a gift, right? But it's real. Brothers and sisters, we have legitimate accounts of this stuff. Okay, the changing of voices. That's not just the stuff of movies, right? Levitating bodies, bodies moving with no visible means of propulsion. Superhuman strength. Demons being able to engage with real intelligence. Now someone's like, "Uh, but Pastor Keith, didn't you just say before that demons like to stay hidden because that's to their advantage? Yes, I absolutely believe that's how they operate most of the time, okay? But what I found is that where belief in demons and supernatural evil is assumed and accepted, their tactics change. You know, just like in war, when the enemy knows that you see them, their tactics are going to change. And oftentimes, those tactics involve fear and intimidation. Which is what you often see actually on the mission field. Now, I know it's Halloween, uh, but my point today is not to tell ghost stories. In fact, obsessing about demons tends not to be a good thing. Okay, see it's Lewis again. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils one is to disbelieve in their existence the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. There are Christians who believe that demons are under every stone, and that every bad impulse they have is because of a demon, right? First of all, that's not true, okay? There is a thing called sin, Right? and most of our bad behavior is probably because of that. Okay. But you know, those of us in this room, those of us listening, I don't think we're in the danger. I don't think we're in danger of overbelieving in demons in our church or in our region. Okay, I think our danger is that we don't account enough for it. In fact, I'm being honest, if I'm being honest, I think we need to be more alert to the very real supernatural forces of evil that are At play in our lives. That's actually what Paul is trying to do here for the Ephesians. Okay? He's reminding them that their battle is ultimately a spiritual battle and that that spiritual battle involves forces beyond flesh and blood. You know, a lot of us, we get obsessed with people who've hurt us, but what we don't realize is oftentimes behind that stuff, there is a spiritual reality that's going on. We make people our enemy, but there's a bigger enemy that we need to be tackling. Paul here is reminding them of this reality because to be oblivious to this reality, as I said before, is to be at a severe disadvantage. It is critically important that we as Christians are aware of Satan and his schemes. Paul says at another place in the Bible that we are not unaware of Satan's schemes, and we're going to go into detail about those schemes later in the series, but for today, just know that he has them. Another thing we also have to keep in mind from today's text, okay, and this is what Paul is trying to get at, okay, when he talks about these supernatural forces and rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, what Paul is trying to convey is that these forces are powerful forces. It is important to be aware of our enemies, okay, but it is also just as important to know their capabilities, because if their capabilities are far beyond our ability to counter them, then you know that you need to recruit help. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, those forces, those spiritual forces, are not, are not forces to be trifled with. Okay? If you try to tackle them alone, you will, you will be obliterated. It'll be like a wolf playing around with a little tiny mouse. Brian Chapel. In his commentary on the Ephesians, he makes a very astute observation, which I think makes a lot of sense. What he says is that Satan has been around for thousands upon thousands of years, probably more. Satan has been at this game for a long time to think that we can go toe-to-toe with him without assistance betrays a naivete and a level of arrogance that is utterly detached from reality. The fact that we as Christians, aware of the spiritual reality, think that we can go through life without the assistance of God, just, oh, I'll just go to church, I'll just, you know, just do my own thing. You are completely naive and deluding yourself. This enemy has been at this for a long time, much longer than you're even alive. And this is why Paul says you need the armor that God gives you. Only with this armor will you be able to stand your ground against those powerful forces. Now, today, uh, we're not going to get into the armor because we don't have time. Uh, but one thing I, I can say about this armor as a preview of what's coming um, uh, in the series is that the armor has already been given to us as Christians. We just need to take it up and use it. So many Christians are powerless in their lives because they refuse to use what has been given to them. See, if you look at the armor and the weaponry, right, that we read, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, what do you notice about that armor and weaponry? That armor and weaponry involves things like truth, righteousness, gospel, salvation, the Holy Spirit, God's Word, and prayer. Those are things that are part of your identity as Christians. When Jesus died for you, and he purchased your salvation, and you came to him, and you surrendered, and you became his child, all these things were given to you as your inheritance as a child of God. Paul is saying here, you just need to take it up and use it. Now, you look at that list right? You know, truth, righteousness, salvation, blah, 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 right? And you're like, those things don't seem like they will be very useful in a fight, okay? That's because you don't fully grasp how powerful they are. The book of Ephesians is actually interesting. Early in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, I pray that you, Ephesians, will be able to grasp how wide and how much inheritance and how much power you have in God, because they didn't fully grasp what they had in him, and neither do we. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about in the rest of the series. The power that is accessible to to us, okay? And how to use what we already are and what we already have in Christ to stand our ground. Look, this war, brothers and sisters, it has already been won, okay? When Jesus comes again the second time, He's coming to clean up shop, okay? But until that day, we need to stand our ground. That's why Paul gives this battle speech to remind us of what our call is as Christians until that final day. We know the outcome of the war. Satan also knows the outcome of the war. But here's the thing, and this is very important to realize. Here's the thing about an enemy who sees the writing on the wall. You know, Satan knows he's, he's doomed right? But here's the thing about an enemy who sees the writing on the wall. If they know that their time is up, but they don't want to surrender, their goal at that point is to try to inflict as much pain as possible before they go down. An enemy with that kind of mindset is extremely dangerous, which is all the more reason we need to learn lean on God and use the armor that He provides us. Let me leave you with this. If you are a Christian, and you are regularly on your knees before God, surrendered to Him, you are more than likely already utilizing the weapons at your disposal. Yes, we can always improve, and that's what I hope we can learn in the upcoming weeks. But if you are not on your knees surrendering to God regularly, Okay, if you are living just like the rest of the world and you're not applying your faith, you are not applying your faith to the various areas of your life, it is high time you start lest you give more and more footholds to forces that you don't want influencing your life. I'm going to ask us to actually go into a time of prayer, uh, if we can have the praise team to start playing behind us. We're going to go into a time of corporate prayer, and I have three topics for us to to pray for, okay? And let's take this time this morning to really come before God. Corporate prayer really, you know, we've been really emphasizing it. You probably thought, okay, we finished the corporate prayer series. We're going to move on. No, we never move on from corporate prayer. That is always part of our DNA, okay? So right now we're we're going to pray together. And the first thing I would ask us to pray for is, that we would be a people that are more aware and more discerning of the forces that are at work in our lives. And that we would be a people who would not fall prey to them. That our eyes, that God would open our eyes to the battle that we're really engaged in. Can we pray that? I think some of us need to repent. We're just kind of running the rat race for the rest of our lives, getting a house and just kind of doing. But we don't realize you're a pawn. Being used and manipulated. If you're just kind of going through life blindly without recognizing this fight, so can we ask God to open our eyes to make us more aware, okay, and that we wouldn't fall prey. Okay, let's pray that right now. Let's